Good morning. Today is, well, it's one of those low country days, the late spring or late winter, early spring day of, of low country South Carolina, um, where we get a little glimpse, right? We get a little glimpse of spring. Um, what's that? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> we, get, we have a glimpse of spring. It, it, it's coming, isn't it? I'm a bearer of bad news. It's not coming next week. It's going to be 32 degrees on Monday night and rainy for the rest of the week. So get excited. But it's a glimpse. You know, we get a little taste of something that's to come. And um, you know, when I lived in, in Pennsylvania for seminary, these were especially, um, especially nice days. It usually didn't happen until um, end of March at that point. But, but, but we knew when we got a glimpse of a day like today, we knew that spring was coming. We know it's coming. It's not coming next week. I'm sorry, but it is. It's coming, and we can be thankful for that. I kind of like to think of the transfiguration along those lines. It's a glimpse of what is coming, a glimpse of, of the glory of Jesus we see um, as he's transfigured up on this mountain. And we, we know that, that it's not coming next week that he has to go down the mountain, that he has a journey of suffering to the cross. Yet, yet when we see this transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John see Jesus in all his glory, um, they, they know who he is. They're reassured that he is the Son of God. And, and no matter what comes next, even in the midst of their doubts, even in the midst of, of Peter denying Jesus three times, he'll reflect later as, as he writes um, in his letter uh, called First Peter, he'll reflect on this moment where he saw Jesus in all his glory, and he'll be reassured that they are following, that they are worshiping the Son of God. And so it's a great passage in Scripture that we're going to look at this morning, this transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Um, and we're going to see, we're going to look at, at what it means to see Jesus in his glory, um, the hard reality of that with the suffering that is to come, and then we're going to take a look at, at what this might mean for us in our lives today. So the first thing is this glorious glimpse of the radiance of God. Um, and certainly that is the most striking thing about this passage. It's the, the full glory of God on display. And Matthew is using images and words from the Old Testament and from, from the Psalms that, that, that speak of the glory of God. And he's, he's putting them there into this scene with Jesus. And I think um, <clears throat> there are two things that, that, that Matthew, that, that God, that, that, that Jesus wants us to take from this passage. And the first one is this. That, that we see up there in His glory in the Mount of Transfiguration, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has come before Him. That everything is leading up to this moment, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the disciples, um, Peter, James, and John, so just three of them, they're called up onto this mountain with Jesus. And they, they journey to the top. It's quiet. Um, it's probably desolate. And there they, they get up to the top, and then all of a sudden... Jesus is transfigured. He's, he's glowing. He's radiant. It's this, this heavenly glowing that, that, that the other gospel writers and the other um, Old Testament, New Testament writers, that they reserve language like this for, for angels and for heavenly beings when they speak of the radiance and the whiteness of Jesus Christ. Uh, they're, they're, it's something we can't even imagine. Okay? They're struggling to put words to this glorious scene. 
And right there to his right and left are Moses and Elijah. And, and they're talking, we learn in other Gospels. They're conversing, and the disciples see this, and they see Jesus in all his glory. Now, what's the symbolism of Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses, if you'll recall, is the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He um, was called out by God. He led Israel out of slavery and bondage in Egypt into uh, freedom, into new life in the Promised Land. And there before Moses died, there was a promise. And God said, one day, I'm going to send another prophet, one who is greater than Moses, one who will deliver you yet again. And from that day on, Israel had plenty of prophets. They, they had Joshua first, and then they had all the judges, and they had kings like Saul and David, and, and prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Hosea, and the list goes on and on. And the simple fact of the matter is that none of these prophets, none of them came even close to the glory of Moses. And so there's this waiting, this anticipation that, that somebody, something, someone is coming that's going to be greater, going to be more glorious than even Moses. And so we have Moses on one side. On the other side, we have Elijah, a famous great prophet and, and um, what they call an eschatological prophet. Isaiah, or Elijah, if you remember, he didn't die, okay? Elijah didn't die. He went off into the wilderness and God swept down in a flaming chariot and, and grabbed Isaiah and lifted him up into the heavens. He never died. And so there was this Jewish expectation. Uh, we see it in the last book in, in, um, in Malachi, I think it's Malachi, um, that Elijah was supposed to return before the Messiah would come. And so we have Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, the greatest or great prophet predicting um, leading up to the return of the Messiah. And right there in the middle, Moses, Elijah, right there in the middle is Jesus. And what happens? A voice, right? A voice comes down from heaven and the voice says, talking about Jesus, he says, This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And all of a sudden, Moses is gone. Elijah is gone, and the only one left is Jesus Christ. He is, is, exceeds Moses and Elijah by far. He is, he is everything Moses was, and more. He's the prophet that is to come. He is everything Elijah predicted, and more. The Messiah to save Israel. And here he is on the mountain in all his glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We see in this passage of the transfiguration that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's saving work. The fulfillment of Moses and Elijah. The second thing we see is um, we see Jesus in all his heavenly splendor, if you will. We see the veil removed, the curtain pulled back to see who Jesus really is. Who he was before his incarnation. Who he is in his resurrection is this glorious son of God. In full radiance full splendor, the glory of God up there on the mountain as seen in Jesus Christ. This glimpse of heavenly glory. Now, what are we going to do with this? With this, this presentation of Jesus like this? Well, I would suggest to you that it demands some sort of a decision. It demands a decision because it was too often we want to look at Jesus and we want to think, well, he's a great man. He had some great teachings, 
But that's not what this is saying, is it? He's more than a great man. He's more than Moses. He's more than a prophet. He's more than Elijah. He's the beloved son of God. You got to make a decision about that, friends. We can't pay lip service to Jesus or pretend to follow him. He's either the son of God or he's not. But if he's not the son of God, then he's just crazy. But if he is the son of God, then we have to listen to him. And so we see in the transfiguration, Jesus in all his glory. Transfiguration also points us to something else. It points us to the harsh reality of the cross. Um, We have this glorious scene on the mountain, but we can't really fully understand it until we see what comes before and what comes after. And this Jesus um, in, in Matthew's gospel here Lifted high and lifted up high and glorious is surrounded on both sides of this presentation with suffering. With suffering. If you look back um, to Matthew chapter 16, you'll remember that great story. Jesus and his disciples there in um, uh, Caesarea Philippi and just a city kind of close to the coast. And Jesus asks him, he says, who, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, that's an easy question to answer. Who do other people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say um, that you're Elijah, that you've returned, that you're a prophet. Um, Others say you're a prophet like John the Baptist. Um, And so that's great. That's an easy answer. But then he looks at them and he says, who? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, disciples? And Peter, um, in this moment of incredible transparency, he, he sees it. He says, you, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And so the disciples, in a rare moment, they get it. They see Jesus. They see the human Jesus. And they say, there's something more. This is the Messiah. And what does Jesus start to do? As soon as they um, are able to confess that, In in chapter 16, verse 21, it says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. So they confess him, you are the Messiah, and he says, I am the Messiah and I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. Now Peter, in his newfound confidence, he doesn't like that. It says, he calls him aside. He, he says, Jesus, you can't die. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You, you cannot be killed. And Jesus responds to him in this, the sharpest language possible. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter is speaking false words. He's speaking the words of Satan. He's not speaking the truth about who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, get behind me. I must suffer. And in fact, Jesus goes on to say, you too will suffer. If you would follow me, you must take up your cross. You don't carry a cross unless you're going to be crucified. If we're going to follow Jesus, if the disciples are going to follow Jesus, they have to follow him all the way to Jerusalem in his death. Death right here on the very front end of the transfiguration. And then death on the back end. They're they're coming down the mountain. Okay, they're coming down the mountain and Jesus says, 
Um, the, the disciples ask him, are you Elijah? And Jesus says, no, Elijah's already come. I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. He's talking about John the Baptist. They didn't know that this was the, 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 a preview of the Messiah, and John the Baptist was beheaded. So also the Son of Man will certainly, what? Suffer at their hands. The Son of Man will suffer. Suffer, And then he gets with all the disciples. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And the disciples were greatly distressed. So I hope you can see that, that, that in this, this Matthew's narrative, we, we go from this confession of Jesus as Messiah to, to, the de- to, to, to this prediction of suffering, up onto the mountain transfiguration, and then back down into suffering. And so you can see that Peter, up on this mountain, beholding the glory of, the God, of God, doesn't quite get it. He doesn't quite see it. He sees the glory of Jesus Christ, and he says this, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter's totally forgotten about this idea of suffering, and he sees the glory of God, and he does what any one of us would have do, done. He wants to hang on to it. He doesn't want to let it go. He wants to confine it. He says, we'll build a tent. We'll camp out. You, Moses, Elijah, we'll all just hang out here on the top of this mountain and enjoy each other forever. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. Who wouldn't want that? But Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that the glory of Jesus Christ is incomplete, is not full, unless we understand the suffering that he must endure. We cannot understand the glory of the transfiguration without the suffering and the cross. We cannot share in the joy of the resurrection unless we first know the horror of the crucifixion. The next mountain that Jesus will climb is Golgotha. He'll climb a mountain to be nailed to a cross. This time he's on a mountain and he hears the voice of God, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The next mountain he climbs, he won't hear God at all. In fact, he'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can't know the glory of Jesus Christ without the suffering of the cross. We can't see Jesus in his glorious white radiance without his humble and bloody nailed hands. It's this great paradox of God that that, that somehow in his glory there is great suffering and somehow in his suffering there is great glory. That's what the transfiguration is pointing us to. So what then does this mean, this glory, this glorious God and, and the suffering Messiah? How, how are we to put all of this together? Well, the first thing is this. Um, God is glorious in his suffering because through it we have access to him. We have access to him. God speaks two times in this passage, okay? Once from this great glorious cloud, he says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
And then he speaks again as the Son of Man, as Jesus himself, who comes over and touches his disciples and say, Arise and get up. Do not fear. So the disciples heard this first voice. Peter had just been babbling on about tents and, and Moses and Elijah. And um, God appears in this glorious cloud. Okay, And what do they do? They fall to their face. They fall to their faces in fear. Now, this is a common reaction throughout the Old Testament. When people see the glory of God, they fall down and they are afraid. It happened um, in, in Exodus. The, the, the people couldn't even touch the mountain that the glory of God surrounded because they would certainly die. It happened with Isaiah, who, was, who received this vision, who was called up into the throne room of God. He beheld the glory of God in the temple. And what did he say? He didn't say, wow, this is really cool. He said, woe, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. He surely thought at that moment that he was dead. Because he's a sinful man. He can't be in the presence of an infinitely holy God. It's interesting, if you go back to Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, they had no problem being in the presence of God. They walked with God in the cool of the garden. That was before sin. But once sin entered the picture, once we started disobeying God, once we turned on Him and and sought to find fulfillment and worship other things, we we, we were separated. We couldn't be in God's presence. God put, um, put a flaming sword to guard the entrance to Eden because God could not be in the presence of sinful man. Holy God and sinful man, they're incompatible. And so the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration saw the glory of God, and they fell to their faces in fear. And what happens? All of a sudden, they look up. Well, they don't look up, actually. They hear a voice. Arise. And they look up, and Moses is gone, and Elijah is gone cloud, the pillar of fire and smoke is gone. And all that left is left standing before them is Jesus Christ. Their friend. Their rabbi. The one who would be their savior. And what does Jesus say to them? These great comforting words. Rise and have no fear. Friends, the only way that we can even approach the glory of God is through the Son. The only way that we can come to Him clean and washed and forgiven of our sin is through the Son who died for us, who gave His life for us, who who took the penalty for sin on His own shoulders. And so He cries out, because He's on the cross, you see Jesus has inherited all of our sin. And so He cries out, why have you forsaken me? Jesus at that moment does not know the presence of God. Because at that moment on the cross, the innocent Christ is covered in our sin. So that we can be forgiven. And so when you make this decision, when you see Christ in his glory, you have to make this decision. Am I going to receive him in my suffering? Am I going to accept the offer he's put on the table? Do I want the forgiveness of sin that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ so that I can share in his resurrection? New life. Do you want that, friends? That's what the transfiguration is pointing us to. And then finally, the transfiguration, while it shows us the access that we have to God through Christ, it is also an invitation. 
for those of us who have received that access, we are invited to follow Jesus. God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What are we supposed to listen to? Well, Jesus told us a few verses earlier. If you would follow me, you must take up your cross. If we want to follow Jesus, if we want to accept this invitation of the transfiguration, then we have got to be willing to take up our crosses. We have got to be willing to suffer. Paul says we're called actually to rejoice in our suffering because it means we're following Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is this world's not going to be easy. People aren't going to like you. When you profess Jesus Christ, you do so winsomely and you do so lovingly, but you can expect folks to persecute you, to ostracize you. You can expect attack on all, angel, on all angles, spiritual attack from Satan, because he certainly doesn't like what you're doing. But if we want to share in the glory of God, we've got to first share in the suffering, right? And so as we um, head into Lent, where you know the church calendar is set up in a way that we are invited to share in the suffering of Jesus Christ, as he makes this journey down from the mountain of the Transfiguration and up to the mountain of Golgotha, we're invited to join him. And to reflect on our lives, reflect on the ways we've fallen short of God. Maybe take up a spiritual discipline or two. Maybe choose something that you want to fast from, whether you don't want to, um, that you want to withhold from yourself so that you might know Christ more closely. That's the invitation of the transfiguration is that we would share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And so I will leave you with that. We have access, friends. We have forgiveness. We have the love of God. And if you've received that, then we have this invitation to follow him to the cross, but on the other side of the cross, to the resurrection, so that we know in our sufferings, that we know in the painful places of this world, we we have this glimpse of God's glory that we hold on to, because one day we will share in that will share in the glory of God forever, provided we first share in his suffering and death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself through the glory of your Son on this mountain of transfiguration. And thank you also for revealing yourself in the suffering of your Son on the mountain of the cross. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to have access to that, to to your grace and to your mercy, that we would share in your suffering so that one day we too may behold you in glory that we might see you face to face. We might know the power of your resurrection and the hope of an eternal world to come. And we ask this through your Son, your beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please stand.